Love is the indispensable Christian virtue. It's the essential virtue that's to characterize our relationship with each other. Brothers and sisters, everything we do must be done in love so that New City Baptist Church may be built up, edified, spiritually strengthened. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is the love chapter of the New Testament. This part of our Bibles teaches us like no other that our interactions as a spiritual family now and in eternity will be characterized by love. Not, not should be characterized, but actually it will be characterized by love. Because when Paul speaks of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's not in the vague and the overused way it's employed in so many pop songs. So somebody to love, can't buy me love. When a man loves a woman, can't help falling in love. Sunshine of your love, a whole lot of love, love me do. Uh, every three years or so, Jill and I um, watched the BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries from the 1990s. The one with Colin Firth, except no substitutes. That's the only one you should be watching in my opinion. And, and those poor women yearning, pining for love. That Jane Austen romantic love and a gentleman with 5,000 a year. Uh, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. The apostle isn't describing how Mr. Darcy loves Miss Bennet, uh, which is what it sounds like when this passage is read at almost every wedding service I've attended. So, Jeremy, Shelley, do not make this mistake. Actually, a few years ago, uh, my unbelieving neighbor, uh, he's an engineer, he asked me for the full theological background on this passage uh, because he had been asked to read this at a friend's wedding. Man, talk about an evangelistic opportunity just served up on a silver platter. And I basically, I, I preached him an older version of this sermon. Uh, plus, he read the chapter on First and Second Corinthians in Carson and Moo's Introduction to the New Testament. That's probably 40 pages worth of stuff. So he was probably the best prepared scripture reader in the history of weddings. But Christian love isn't the warm fuzzies. Christian love is an eschatological love. The Bible tells us that our Christian love, one for another, represents the power of Christ's future consummated kingdom breaking into the present day. Just as love for God, just as love for one another, characterizes life in the new heavens and new earth, so it stamps God's church today. Look at your big picture in your bulletins. Believers must be good stewards of every gift the Spirit graciously distributes. Thus, we must use such gifts by serving one another in the church as an organic body. Most importantly, we must use those gifts with love. Otherwise, the gifts are worthless. Only when we use the gifts with love can we genuinely serve one another for the fame of God's name. The fact is, this text is meant to get us asking serious questions about the reality of our faith and the biblical basis of our fellowship. I'm going to say that again. This text is meant to get us asking serious questions about the reality of our faith and the biblical basis of our fellowship. 
So what we're going to learn today is how the time warp invasion of the consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ plays out now in my dealings with Armando and Esther's dealings with Carla and all our dealings with each other as the church is built up, as the church is edified and strengthened in love. But let's set the context first for chapter 13. We learned last week, uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 is all one unit of thought dealing with the use of certain grace gifts in a corporate worship context and the relation of those gifts to love, which is the most excellent way. It's not a gift for the Christian. Some in the Corinthian church were overvaluing certain grace gifts, weren't they? In particular, they were placing a premium on the gift of tongues. And speaking in tongues, quote-unquote, as it's used in 1 Corinthians, refers to an individual's praising God in a language that neither the speaker nor the hearers understand unless God supernaturally enables someone to interpret. And those in the church not blessed with this God-given gift were deemed by some of their brothers and sisters to be less important. You're here, I'm up here because I have tongues and you don't. It's disgusting, it's terrible. And the gifts the Holy Spirit had given many in the church to facilitate public worship and to edify the church they were being used in a disorderly, chaotic manner. Look at chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? And the way that's constructed in the Greek means the answer is no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. That is, the gifts that build up a local church, that help others, that are intelligible, as chapters 14, chapter 14, verse 2 goes on to say. Look at that text. 14.2, for those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But, on the other hand, in contrast, those who prophesy speak to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So do you see? That's love. That, that, that's the loving outworking in that, in that, of that gift. Strengthening, encouragement, comfort. Verse 4, for those who speak in a tongue edify themselves but those who prophesy edify the church. He's saying uninterpreted tongues addressed to God edify only the speaker. And that's not, I don't believe, a blanket criticism against the gift of tongues. After all, Paul's going to say in chapter 14 that he speaks in tongues in private more than anybody else in the church. But this is a corporate worship context. In that context, uninterpreted tongues addressed to God edify only the speaker. But prophecy directed toward the people edifies the church so that all might benefit. So that all are built up in the faith. 1231. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Or to paraphrase, you are earnestly desiring the gift of tongues, but you should earnestly desire more edifying gifts instead, like prophecy. But before Paul directly addresses that topic, which he goes at hammer and tongs in verse 14, he writes this, And yet, 
I will show you the most excellent way. And of course, this most excellent way is not a spiritual gift at all. It's love. Christian love. Not a grace gift of the Spirit, but an entire way of life. And without this indispensable virtue of love, any spiritual gift that we may have must be judged to be utterly worthless. Point number one in your bulletins, the indispensability of Christian love. Love authenticates, quote-unquote, spiritual people. Not this gift, that gift, however electrifying and powerful it may be, love. Look at what the Apostle says in chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And that verse is supposed to shock us. That verse is supposed to wake Christians up out of our prideful, self-absorbed sin. I'm not sure that the Apostle is saying that there is such a thing as angelic tongues. I think, rather, what he's doing is he's drawing as sharp a contrast as possible with love. He's making a very simple point. He's saying, no matter how exalted my gift of tongues may be, even if I speak in the tongues of heavenly creatures, without love, I am nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And notice that it's not the gift of tongues. It's not the gift of tongues as a resounding gong, but I myself. My action of speaking in tongues without love has left a permanent effect on me that has diminished my value. Just as preaching a sermon every Sunday without love diminishes my value. Just as hosting people in our homes for a meal without love diminishes our value. Jill, Chelms, Victoria, Chris, Jeremy, serving God's people in worship through music on a Sunday morning without love would diminish your value. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Lovelessness transforms us into something we should not be, we must not be. We become a walking contradiction. People filled with the Holy Spirit who live in the power of this new covenant age, united together as one spiritual family, part of that body, who do not love. Inconceivable. Love characterizes God himself and the eternal kingdom of his son. Yet a loveless person professes to be a child of God and a citizen of his kingdom? Absolutely, totally inconceivable. And that's why our first point this morning needs to be read and preached, I believe, as a warning. It's a warning. If in the Corinthian context, people in the church are lovelessly, they are pridefully going on and on during corporate worship, speaking in tongues with no interpretation, which means their spiritual gift of praising God in an unlearned language is of no benefit to anybody who can hear them. It merely shines an ego spotlight on themselves. Chapter 13, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries 
and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Even the gift of prophecy, the reception and subsequent transmission of spontaneous, divinely originating revelation, even prophecy directly from God, can be practiced with sinful lovelessness. No matter how much reliable revelation is being transmitted, prophecy is intrinsically valueless if it operates without love, even if what is being revealed is all mysteries and all knowledge. And the same thing goes for the gift of faith, a faith that can move mountains. If I have a faith that can soar above anything and overcome all difficulties, yet still I lack love, then Paul's judgment is shattering. Not only are spiritual gifts exercised without love of no value, but I myself, as a person, am simply nothing. And it's not just spectacular and miraculous charismatic gifts. Verse 3 describes incredibly self-sacrificing philanthropy, physical hardship, but it's all divorced from Christian love. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's not love for God's people. That's just forced altruism. It's forced on selfishness. I am nothing. I gain nothing. Paul is coming down super hard on this. So a word of warning, my brothers and sisters, and I'm preaching this to me. Uh, you'll find lots of Christians, all kinds of Christian books saying that love doesn't belong to the uh, emotional realm. It's very popular in Christian circles today to say that love is really an unswerving resolve to seek the other person's good, which is why they say love can be commanded by God. So, uh, Andrew, uh, I may dislike you intensely, brother. Uh, you may be the one guy in this church I hope you withdraw your membership from New City, never to be heard from again, but as long as I conscientiously resolve upon your good and I act accordingly, then that's still love. And God is satisfied. No, that's not love. That is a satanic lie seeking to undermine our unity as the body of Jesus Christ. The power of the consummated age of the church experiences in the present. That power is not forced altruism. It's not forced on selfishness. It's not forced self-denying philanthropy. It is the love of Jesus Christ. Christ. And any gift we possess, any mountain-moving faith we possess, any, any self-denying surrender of all of our possessions, even, even uh, suffering the death of martyrdom, all those things are insignificant unless they are accompanied by genuine love for God and a genuine love for His people. This is so important. Every local church will have a great diversity of gifts. We learned this last week. Everybody is bringing something essential to the table. But this diversity in gifting must never lead to fragmentation, but rather to greater unity among believers in the church. That was Paul's whole point in his analogy 
of the body with as many parts. Remember that? So God has put us uh, in the body with these differences so that we might depend upon each other. But we need to check our hearts. If we exercise these gifts without love, then we gain nothing. Paul says we are nothing. Our mountain-moving faith and angel tongues, our willingness to be made a martyr on the mission field of Saudi Arabia, our desire to sell all our possessions and give to the poor or to live among the poor, uh, the sacrifice we make on the Lord's Day with hide-and-seek kids, the church setup and takedown team, the hospitality of our open homes, the money that we give to New City Baptist Church, the time week after week we devote to serving our brothers and sisters with our musical gifts, the sermons I write as your pastor, on its own, apart from genuine love for God, apart from genuine love for his people, in no sense attests to our high spiritual attainment or the superiority of our experiences with the Holy Spirit. As one commentator writes, we may have five tremendous spiritual gifts, but when we subtract from that figure one loveless heart, we're left with zero. So, if we are to love our brothers and our sisters at New City Baptist, and if without love we are nothing, if indeed love authenticates my claim to being spiritual, of possessing the Spirit, what then are some of the characteristics of Christian love? What's the acid test for determining if I am a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong? How does this play itself out in the context of local church life? What does the Bible tell us? This is where verses 4 to 7 come in, our second point. Some characteristics of Christian love. Love controls the thoughts and actions of spiritual people. What is Christian love? What does Christian love taste like? And I, I say taste deliberately because I think it may be helpful to think of Christian love as being something like stew. So all that, all that Jane Austen is paying off here. This is the kind of romantic guy I am one day away from Valentine's Day. Love is like stew. Because love isn't just one thing. Right? It's composed of many, many things. And just like stew, it has many ingredients. Right? So what are those ingredients? This is what Holy Scripture says. 13 verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Brothers and sisters, this is a description of what God, the Holy Spirit, has produced in our hearts this is how the time warp invasion of the consummated kingdom of, of Jesus Christ plays out now in our local church in all of our dealings with each other. We're to be patient with one another. Verse 4, love is patient. So let's, just, let's insert ourselves into this text and pray that the Holy Spirit may grant us humility. Do we respond rashly or 
irritably toward anybody in this church who troubles or inconveniences us? Are we the kind of person who bears up under provocation without complaint? If not, here's the problem. We're self-absorbed. We're inflated with our own self-importance. When we're impatient, we're reacting to wounded pride, aren't we? And we're forgetting the infinite patience with which the Lord Jesus has treated us in the face of all of our sinful provocation. Love is patient. Love is kind. And, and kindness is the active counterpart to patience. We're not, we're not just enduring nobly when we're provoked or, or when we find someone rather annoying. We reach out through deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. We, we pay back hurt with kindness. Now, at this point, I personally, I feel Paul could have said, okay, those two areas of holy living, I mean, that's hard enough. Be patient and be kind. I mean, so they're, they're, they're sanctification homework for a lifetime. Spend 40 years on that and then come back for a bit more when you're old and gray. But Paul doesn't stop with patience and kindness because this loving behavior is directly related to the power of the new age, the power of God's Holy Spirit, and the power of the gospel. Of course, of course there's more. He's just getting started. Love does not burn with envy. That means love does not have intense negative feelings toward a brother or a sister's success, their achievements, or their opportunities. We aren't status seekers. So we don't begrudge the status and the honor of another when God brings it sovereignly their way. Instead, we delight in it for the sake of the other, because we love them. That's what love is. Brother, you just bought a condo or a house while I'm still renting with roommates in this crazy market. I'm genuinely happy for you. Sister, you're engaged to be married at 21 while I'm still single at 35 or 55. I'm genuinely happy for you. The list is endless. There's just all sorts of things that Satan can dangle before our eyes. He just loves to do that to make us jealous, uh, envy. He, he loves the evil one loves to stir up envy in a local church. But Christian love does not envy. Instead, it asks, how can I best serve those for whom Christ died, whatever my own desires? No matter if they have more spiritual gifts, no matter if they're better off financially, or more talented, more intelligent, more beautiful, whatever. Love does not burn with envy. Love does not boast. It is not proud. That means we don't cherish inflated ideas of our own self-importance because it's not possible. It's not possible to pridefully boast and love at the same time. 
So let's check our hearts, New City, each of us. Are, are we exhibiting any behavior in this church which is deliberately attention-seeking? Are we exhibiting behavior designed to impress others with our own importance, our own intelligence, our own ability, our own status, our own political discernment, our own theological discernment? If we looked at your social media accounts, what would we see? If we were a fly on the wall as you and your spouse talk about your brothers and sisters at New City, what would we hear? Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Verse 5, love does not dishonor others. How do you treat members of this church who are in a lower station than you? Uh, How do you treat Christians who are not as intelligent or as cultured or as clean? People who struggle with sins, you don't. Who are of a different race. Who are coming out of a lifestyle background that's pretty abysmal. Are there even subtle ways you're saying, this is you and this is me. And, And this is a distinction that I'm going to be maintaining in my own heart. This is you, this is me. You see, do you see how all this keeps coming back to pride and an inflated view of self? Every single example of lovelessness in this chapter can be traced back to pride. Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Love is not self-seeking which means love is not self-serving. It does not seek its own interests. Even equality with God was not a position the eternal son exploited for his own advantage. For the eternal son, equality with God did not mean getting. It meant giving up. Taking on the form of a slave and dying on a cross. That's because love never seeks its own advantage. Are you ever tempted when thinking of areas of possible service in this church to ask, how can I feel most comfortable and most appreciated while using my gifts at New City Baptist? It's certainly not hide-and-seek kids. It's certainly not coming here at 8.30 to set up chairs. There can be no room in God's church for loveless, self-seeking Christians. How can there be? We serve a God who washed the dirty feet of his disciples the night before he went to the cross to die for their sins. That's to be our model of love and service. So, I want to challenge you. Talk to Natalie about hide-and-seek kids. We need volunteers. We need help. Talk to Danielle about being on the setup team. We need help. Love is not self-seeking. Husbands, since love never seeks its own advantage, I want you to think back over this past week. Did you serve yourself and not love your wife? Then talk to her about it. Ask her forgiveness and repent. Wives, 
Love never seeks its own advantage. Did you serve yourself last week and not love your husband? Then talk to him about it. Ask for forgiveness and repent. Love does not demand its own way. It seeks the edification and the interest of others. If you're a Christian, then here's, here's, I think, consideration number one. How can I best glorify God by serving and loving his people? Eddie and Carla, that's kind of your, your marching orders now as you move out into membership of this church. How can I glorify God best by serving and loving his people? That's how we're all thinking of Eddie and Carla and each other. How shall the Christian service to which God calls me, the loving edification of my brothers and sisters at New City, be enhanced by my daily death to self? I say this in love, but that death to self can be something as small but as important as speaking English to each other while we're at church. That needs to be a rule of love that we have at New City. This is an issue that churches across Toronto face. We're the third most cosmopolitan city in the world. But nothing will stop someone from going up to your group and talking to you faster or moving on to another seat during the potluck lunch when we start having potluck lunches again than to hear a bunch of members speaking a language that they don't understand. We're having racial cliques in the church, not out of any prejudice, but just due to ease and comfort and familiarity. God forbid. We're having lifestyle, life stage, call it. It's life stage cliques. Uh, the marrieds, the singles, the young people, the old people, the new parents. How easy is it to be a new mom and come to church and talk to other moms exclusively. Or to be a single brother, but not talking to your married sister at our prayer meeting or at our Lord's Day service about how she's getting along with, her, with being a mom and asking how you can pray for her. We all gravitate toward easy and selfish fellowship choices, don't we? It's either selfishness that attracts us to that person or, or fear that repels us. So let's mix it up, right? Age, gender, ethnicity, marriage, singles, kids, no kids. What does our hospitality look like? Is it eclectic? Is, it, is your church membership hospitality uh, joyously random, utterly random? You know, are, are, are we basically just working our way through the membership list? Uh, our prayer list should be like that, right? We don't just pray for the people who are like us. Our hospitality shouldn't be any different. Who is it this week? Who's on the list? Oh, it's John and Jill. Okay, wonderful. Who is it next week? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm making a lasagna for Freddie and Cindy, and I'm going to their place to eat it with them. Be loving. Die to self-interest. If someone has a pack of kids or a newborn baby, die to self and accommodate them by going to their place if they would find that helpful with their schedules and nap times and feedings. Or maybe 
those parents are just dying to get out of the house and live like a real human being again for three hours, you can babysit for them. Or if you're older, be amenable to going to a student dorm to eat mac and cheese with a starving student, right? A fellow member. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's no place for young people's retreats or, or a married couple's outing. Those can be special times that are fun and biblically instructive for people uh, in that group. Neither, neither am I saying that you must invite the whole church to your birthday party. Otherwise, you're a loveless, selfish person. I'm not saying that. Neither am I saying that there can't be natural, just natural, easy friendships that are deep and meaningful that won't be shared with everybody at the church. What I'm saying is, week after week after week after week, we live out our lives in the context of our church membership. We've covenanted to do so. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And so we minister the word to one another in our hospitality, in discipleship relationships, in our prayers with and for each other, in our acts of service, and in our friendships. There's always, always teaching, encouragement, modeling, service, accountability, and speaking the truth in love. It's all edification, and it all promotes conduct that develops Christ-like character. So ask yourself, how shall the Christian service to which God calls me, the loving edification of my brothers and sisters at New City, be enhanced by my daily death to self? Love is not easily angered, which means we're to be a people who are not easily provoked. Don Carson writes this, in personal relationships, love is not easily angered. That is, it is not touchy with a blistering temper, just barely hidden below the surface of a respectable facade, just waiting for an offense, real or imagined, at which to take umbrage. Love is not easily angered. Also, love keeps no record of wrongs. No, score, no scorecard, there's no filing cabinet of grievances. What is it about Depraved human nature. We just, we just love to nurse the, the memory of an injustice done to us. Why do we enjoy thinking, that person hurt me, that person wounded my pride, and I will never forget it? But instead of nursing the memory of an injury, love refuses to notice that anything has happened. Love forgives completely. Love forgives thoroughly. Even that thing that person sit, said or did the other week that you thought was really, really thoughtless. Are you seeing a pattern here? I mean, all of this is practical. This is practical love. This is not sentimental, gushing kind of sentiment, right? Everything in this chapter is related to behavior. And these verses are a biblical description of love. This is the stew, and we evaluate ourselves in its light. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil. And there's a German word here that captures this idea perfectly, schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is satisfaction or pleasure felt at someone else's misfortune. It's malicious joy. It's gloating over people's failures. I said this before, but Nelson from The Simpsons, 
He is schadenfreude incarnate. Ha ha, right? Someone breaks their leg. Ha ha. <laughs> so ask yourself, are you a new city Nelson? Yes, so you don't want to be that guy. Do you take any pleasure at the loss of esteem suffered by another if their involvement in some wrongdoing comes to be publicly exposed, either in the church or in the world? Do you follow celebrity gossip? Who's cheating on whom? Who's filing for divorce? Love does not delight in evil. What's happening in your heart when there's a matter of church discipline at a members meeting? Do you enjoy opportunities to lecture your brothers and sisters on who is sinning? Are you overly eager to rebuke and pronounce judgments of failure within the congregation? Love does not delight in evil. Instead, verse 7, love always protects. Love passes over in silence. It covers over. It's ready to make allowances. Love always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. That's, that's not saying Christian love makes us gullible. But that love prefers to be generous in its openness and acceptance rather than suspicious and cynical. Somebody says something and there's two ways you can take it. Does your heart automatically kind of incline towards that's the nasty way to take it, that must be what they meant, or, oh, it could be interpreted this way, the loving way, I'm going to go that way. Love hopes for the best, even when we've been disappointed by repeated personal abuse. Love never ceases to have faith. We're ready to give a second chance and to forgive. When the evidence is adverse, love hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. And that's because our trust is a reflection of our trust in God. Friend, I want to ask, do you know the power of the new covenant age? Are, are you experiencing the transformed life that the new birth always gives? Do you act like what you are? Can you say that these, can we say that these verses characterize us? Do these verses characterize our church? If we are a loveless people, a people whose love is not patient nor kind, if we are a boastful people, a proud people, rude in our interactions, self-seeking, easily angered, if that characterizes us as a people, and yet we have faith that moves mountains, and we speak with the tongues of angels, and we sell off all of our property to the poor, and we give ourselves up to martyrdom, it's all for naught. Listen to what the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. I need to quote more Spurgeon in my sermons, I think. When then you read the apostles' high encomiums of love, do not say, that is, a, that is a fancy virtue to which special certain saints have attained, and, and we are bound to admire them for it, but we need not imitate them. Far from it. This love is the common everyday livery or uniform of the people of God. It's not the prerogative of a few. It must be the possession of all. Do not, therefore, however lofty the model may be, look up to it as though you could not reach it. You must reach it. It is put before you not only as a thing greatly desirable, but as absolutely needful. For if you excelled in every spiritual gift, 
yet if you had not this, all of the rest would profit you nothing whatever. Beloved, you're part of a body, a body united together in an eternal spiritual union, a union purchased for us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church's living head. And love, whereby God sacrifices his unique son on a cross for undeserving sinners. A love that secures, through Jesus' substitutionary death, the forgiveness of sins and the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And now, as we are indwelt by God's Spirit, the church is characterized by that same divine love. Why? Because love characterizes God himself and the eternal kingdom of his Son. And we're its citizens. We're a living body with Christian love flowing through our veins. Don't mistake me. I'm not preaching this because there's rampant lovelessness on the loose at New City. Rather, I know too well the sinful tendencies of my own heart. But if I don't put pride to death, if you don't put self to death, love will die. And in my lovelessness, I will drag the power of the gospel through the mud. So, as a church, God's grace assisting us, let's come out of COVID-19 and the impact this last two years has had on us as a church on a love trajectory. That sounds like a A 70s disco song, but a love trajectory. Nothing, literally else, nothing else tells more about the power of the gospel, either to ourselves or to one another or to this fallen world than our love. Literally nothing else. Finally, very quickly, point three, the permanence of love. Love is eternal and complete while grace gifts are temporal. And I pray this will be an encouragement to our souls. Let me start by asking my wife a dear question. Jill, how wise a man would you think me to be if I proposed that we pour all of our savings into a company that's developing analog television antennas? Or a fax machine developer was looking for some venture capital. I gave him our life savings. (laughs) Or a company is looking to develop a landline telephone system. You don't have to be Warren Buffett to know that any money invested in those areas is money wasted. They have no future. Right? They're passing away. They're being supplanted with new technology. No one's getting analog television antennas. And as, people of, as the people of God, we want to be working in the present on things that will ultimately last into God's future. That's, why, that's what Paul is working out in these remaining verses. Paul tells the church that three things, faith, hope, and love, will last forever. They will last into the age to come. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, charismatic gifts, very highly prized by the church in Corinth because they gave great occasion for boasting. They will not last forever. Why not? Because those charismatic gifts are merely signposts to the future. And when we arrive at our destination, we no longer need signposts. These grace gifts belong to the present age. Love, however, is no mere signpost. Christian love is a foretaste of God's ultimate eternal reality. Look at verse 8. Love never fails. That means love is eternal. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. There will come a time when those great gifts will, no, will be no more. They will cease. They will be stilled. They will pass away. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness, when the perfect comes, what is in part disappears. What Paul is saying is this. The church's knowledge of divine things now in this present age is partial. It's incomplete. But when completion comes, the imperfect impartedness disappears. In other words, the gifts of prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, and presumably by extrapolation most other charismatic gifts, will pass away at some point in the future to Paul's writing, a future time designated by the apostle as the perfect, or when completeness comes. Verse 10. So when does this completeness arrive? As you can imagine, this is a matter of great debate. <laughs> there are two arguments put forward for when completeness comes. Number one, when Scripture is complete. That is, when the New Testament canon is closed, when God has finished writing the Bible, when we may not add any more books to the Bible. That's position number one. Number two is this, when Jesus returns. That is when the situation that Jesus' return creates comes. To my thinking, that first view, when Scripture is complete, is a creative way to support cessationism. But it doesn't fit the literary context. It's difficult to imagine how Paul could possibly, possibly, have the completed canon in mind. Uh, look at me at your handout, and at the table at the very bottom, here we see a series of now and later contrasts. So now is the present age, later is the age to come. So now, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge exist, but they will pass away in the age to come. Love never ends. Now we know and prophesy only in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now I'm like a child. When I was a child, I spoke, thought, and reasoned like a child. Then I will be like an adult. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now we see in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully. Now, faith, hope, and love remain. Then, only love will remain. Those contrasts between now and later only, only make sense if Paul is contrasting what we experience now in the present age with what we will experience as a result of Jesus returning. The state of affairs brought about by his second advent. Even the way Paul begins the letter further suggests that spiritual gifts will operate until Jesus returns. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Just a, a very interesting verse. It's definitely food for thought. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And we can see why there's so much at stake interpreting this one verse, chapter 13, verse 10, because if completeness, if perfection can be located in the first century with the completion of the canon, the New Testament canon, that means no, no alleged spiritual gift of prophecy or tongues is valid today, if that were true. Every single instance can be dismissed as religious enthusiasm or being led away and astray by demons, perhaps, but it, it, and we would actually have 
biblical warrant for believing so. After all, the perfect, the completeness has come. The New Testament scripture is complete. And so now we're to put away the imperfect impartedness. However, if we say completeness is related to the state of affairs brought about by the second advent of Christ, then there's nothing in this passage to preclude a valid gift of tongues or prophecy in the church today. It would mean, it would mean that scripture itself offers no shelter to those who wish to rule out all claims to charismatic gifts. It would mean that there is actually biblical warrant for believing that God still blesses the church with spiritual gifts such as tongues, miracles, and prophecy and gifts of healing, and that they positively will not cease until Jesus returns in glory. So which one do we pick? Well, if we just let the text speak for itself, I think the answer is clear. Paul's telling us the gifts do pass away or disappear when we see the Lord face to face and know him fully, even as we are fully known by him. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You see, the language Paul uses when describing completeness, it is way, way, way too exalted to be speaking about what church life is like now that we possess the New Testament. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Certain childish activities are age-appropriate, but there comes a time when those activities are no longer appropriate. Little Ethan Reyna running around the church pretending he's Spider-Man? That's fine. But what about his dad running around the church pretending he's Spider-Man? Then we have trouble, all right? <laughs> Certain activities are age-appropriate, but there comes a time when those activities are no longer appropriate. In the context of spiritual gifts, Paul is saying that their use is entirely appropriate at this stage in salvation history, but not when perfection comes, not when the Lord Jesus returns, not when we see the Lord Jesus face to face, not when we know him fully, even as we are fully known. I'm convinced verse 10 is not speaking about the completion of the New Testament canon. Carson writes this, to argue that the spiritual experience and maturity of the early church before the canon's completion are to the experience of maturity of the post-canonical church, just what an experience of an infant's talk and understanding is to that of an adult is historical nonsense. I mean, good grief, just, just read the book of Acts. Look what the church was like on the first day of Pentecost. They had no New Testament. They make 99% of the churches today look like spiritual slackers. Verse 12, for now... We see only a reflection as in a mirror that is dull, polished, metal, Corinthian mirrors. It's not Bed Bath & Beyond kind of mirrors at all. Paul is saying the divine revelation we receive to the spiritual gifts that edify the church when in comparison to the end of the age. Now they're indistinct. They're unclear. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then... I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
You see, however much we respect the New Testament canon, Paul can only be accused of the wildest exaggeration if the Bible's completion is what he's talking about there. That is strong, strong language. Paul is saying that completeness entails a state of affairs where my knowledge is in some way comparable with God's present knowledge of me. He's saying that my knowledge in the perfect, when completeness comes, will contain no false impressions and will not be limited to what my knowledge is able to perceive in this age because of sin. Think of it like this. If the sun goes down and gets dark in your apartment, what do you do? You turn the lights on. And when the sun rises in the morning, what do you do? All the lights go off. They're not needed anymore. And it's the same thing here. When that wonderful knowledge of God becomes ours, the purpose of such gifts as prophecy, knowledge, and tongues will have disappeared. What possible use could they still render? If Natalie tells me, John, I have a partially functioning computer monitor and a partially functioning cell phone, but when that which is fully functioning arrives, I'll put away what is partially functioning. I would understand that she is waiting for a new fully functioning computer monitor and cell phone to be delivered, right? And what Paul is waiting for here is for the complete and perfect versions of what is manifested in the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. He's waiting for perfect communication, perfect communion, and perfect interpersonal knowledge between God and his people. And that will arrive, dear brothers and sisters, when we experience the fullness of the new creation in the presence of the Lord himself, when we see Jesus face to face. Just, just think how wonderful that advance in understanding will be. Think of the developmental difference between you and a little child like Noah. Think of the difference between a dull, polished metal mirror's reflection and the substance of the real, glorified, resurrected flesh of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what this text is saying. What will it be like to know God, freed from the inconceptions and inabilities to understand due to sin, with no false impression, even as he knows us? Thank God for the cross. Thank God for the gospel. This is what is coming, so Christian, be encouraged. This is what God will accomplish in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin in the new heavens and new earth. Verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, not because it lasts eternally, because so do faith and hope. Uh, this gets a bit tricky because Paul doesn't specify the reason why Love is the greatest virtue. This verse is probably a sermon all into itself, but I think the superiority of love is based on the nature of God himself. God is love, 1 John 4, 16. And so as an essential reflection of God's character, love can never end. And that's why this church, this is why any church is to be like heaven itself. You've heard me say a number of times, a local church is an outpost of heaven. What makes New City like heaven itself? Our love. 
Christian love is a foretaste of God's ultimate eternal reality. And the greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit of God has been poured out upon us in these last days, and that we are citizens of God's already here, not yet come kingdom, is our love for one another. Literally, that's what the Bible says. It is an indispensable Christian virtue. And it has certain specific characteristics which God has revealed to us this morning in his word. And this love, brothers and sisters, is permanent. It's an eschatological virtue. It's an eternal virtue based on the very nature of our Heavenly Father, who is himself love. And so our worship of God must take place. It will take place within a community marked by this divine attribute, this essential Christian virtue. Amen.